speak to us now. Oh Lord, we pray, speak to our souls today. Cause this is why we come dear Lord, for we are now ready for your word. For your word is a lamp unto our feet, and your word is a light unto our pathway. This is why we come, dear Lord, for we are now ready for your word. Lord, will we, will you prepare our hearts to hear the word? Not me, but your word. Because um, that is the only effectual way that our lives are changed. Not through the pontifications of men without the word. Um, but the word, the word, the word, Lord, will you give us the pure word of God today? And will you open us up to hearing your word, to listening to your word? And doing your word. I love Ezra. Ezra 710, Lord, you said through him. He set his heart to study the law, to practice the law, and after that, teach it to others. God will, we see our lives as shaping mechanisms for one another. Um, will you do it in our lives, Lord God, and help us to be more today than we were yesterday. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. I have an um, interesting topic we're going to talk about. Today. Don't put the slide up yet. Um, <laughs> we're going through First Peter. And um, I, I wanted so bad to like before the presidential election to like go non-verse by verse and snatch it um, and put it before the presidential election. Um, but we trusted God and said, look, let's just let's just walk through it. And I think today's message is um, a very important message in light of the climate of America right now. Um, and even the climate and misconceptions of Christianity. And we've been going through first Peter and we've been going through line by line, verse by verse, precept upon precept, uh, testimony upon testimony, ordinance upon ordinance, and we've just been kind of walking through it. And we have been seeing a group of Christians who are experiencing socioeconomic uh, frustration because they are being ostracized. And so it's affected some of them financially. Um, it's affected some of them in relation to their former social status. Um, they, before they became Christians, some of these Christians were extremely privileged in the upper echelons of society. And when they embraced Jesus Christ alone as Savior, the, the, the high place that they used to have before men 
got demoted. However, not realizing that a new high place has been placed for them. And that is a high place in Jesus. Last two weeks before this, we talked about a royal priesthood. And it's interesting that the text that we're in, Paul automatically begins talking about the Christian's connectivity to the social strata of society and the political strata of society right after he talked about the theocracy of Jesus and their role in his theocracy. And I'm explaining that. Theocracy meaning God's comprehensive and governmental rule invaded through his people now and later. And so, and so we come to a text where, where I feel like this is good for us because I don't like what Christians have been become known for in the political arena. And I think that Peter just it's just crazy how God works things out that Peter does a gorgeous job of laying forth for us some ways in which Christians should be properly perceived, even if they're not liked. Because it's normal for Christians not to be liked. If you're hated on, that's a regular occurrence that happens for those who walk godly in Christ Jesus. If people slander you and if people gossip about you, hopefully it flows from banging spiritual formation that causes their souls to either be convicted or frustrated. And so we come to this passage and we dive in in verse 13 of chapter 2. And Peter begins, he says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, where it, uh, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governor as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to pray to the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. I want to I want to talk about today politics, Christianity and ethics. Politics, Christianity and ethics. I think I think this is like I think in our society, Christians have a narrow, extremely narrow view of politics. Um, we tend to separate politics. I remember I can't remember who it was. They would always say um, there's several things that I don't talk about with people. And two of them is politics and religion. They have nothing to do with each other. And as I read the Bible, the Bible actually is heavily a political book. I mean, you can't go through almost any book of the Bible and not experience some type of politics. It's amazing. Most people think Jesus was this passive dude that sat out and didn't engage politics. The cross was a very political yet spiritual act. And so, and so we see, we see one, of the, one of the funniest political places in the Bible is when people misconstrue Jesus, which I believe we misconstrue Jesus today. You know, Jesus 
came a different way than people expected, like we saw in the song. And they thought he was going to become as this extremely political ruler when he was born. Uh, not just when he was born, but when his uh, uh, ministry was revealed. They were thinking that the one who was promised to come that was going to unveil and bring them political deliverance has finally come. And then when he came, he didn't reveal the kingdom overtly. He revealed the kingdom covertly. And even John the Baptist, he in jail, like, I done got locked up for this cat. You know what I'm saying? Um, like, his, his um, visitation hours was on, and some of his disciples came to visit him. And, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm going to just bring it up modern day. You know, it's the thick fiberglass, you know. And um, John is sitting there on one side of the fiberglass and two of his disciples there. And he said, he say, pick up the phone, man, pick up the phone. He pick up the, pick up the phone, and they start talking. Um, kind of reminds me of the Minister Society another conversation but um they said what's what's up john how you doing um it's, it's all good how, now, now talk to me about jesus oh man like he's baptizing people he's um healing sickness um he's casting out demons and the poor actually hear the gospel john's like hmm like can you go to him um, and ask him what's going on um, because um, should we expect more from him or shall we look for another? And even the one who was the forerunner of Jesus was politically confused about Jesus. And Jesus talks a lot and he engages a lot the political strata through his messiahship. And so we come to this passage and we see that the people of God were either under Claudius's rule or the early part of Nero's rule where some of the intensive parts of the, 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 the persecution hasn't yet broken out. And so, and so we see him actually beginning to talk about several different institutions that no matter what you're going through in life, that the believer has no right to take a break from. He first talks about our political responsibility, our work responsibility, our marital responsibility, and overall to summit, he will talk about our eternal responsibility. And so he dives into this passage and he says, just because you're a Christian now does not give you the right to act a fool politically. He says, in other words, I want you to have a certain posture to you that most people don't have towards them. In other words, Christianity isn't a license to begin to deconstruct your responsibilities. Suffering is not a reason to uh, fall back from your responsibilities. And so Peter does beautiful, and he says in verse 13, he says, be subject. Stop there. Beautiful word, be subject. <coughs> you will hear this all the way through Peter. You will hear it a bunch of times through Paul. It is a powerful word. You will hear under every institutional format that Peter will talk about in this section, you will hear him utilizing the word for a uh, 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 being subject. Hupotasso is the word. It means fall in line with your role. That's what it means. Lock, lego yourself into your rank. Yeah. In other words, whatever 
fit you are spiritually, God wants you to attach yourself to your proper place. In other, and so he's going to talk about that for a wife, a husband. He's going to talk about that for believers at work. He's going to talk about Jesus ultimately doing it. But he talks politically about this. And I think we as believers have flunked at this in America today. I, I, I don't like certain radio programs for Christians. Because I think, and I, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but I think people, people think people's only relationship to Christians to the political arena are only two issues, homosexuality and abortion. I'm going to be honest with you. I struggle with that biblically. Because it's interesting who he's telling them to be subject to. He's telling them to be, this is not a democracy or a republic that they're under. They're under a monarchy, a dictatorship. In other words, where cats were openly immoral, killed people at will, and he calls them to submit to what seemingly is foolish leadership. And I struggle with Christians. I struggle because we run our mouth too much. I've seen people at abortion rallies having baby parts in pictures. And I understand, like, I'm, we're against abortion. We, 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 we are against the idea of homosexuality. However, I think we've shortchanged ourselves and we've dealt with symptoms, but we haven't dealt systemically. Oh, I wish you'd stay with me for a minute. And, we, we're, and, and because of that, People are confused, and we'll talk about this in a second. They're confused about the place of Christians. And the reason why they don't like us is not because of the right reasons, but the wrong reasons. Peter assumes in this section that, Pete, that God's people are suffering and being sociologically pushed aside, economically bankrupt, because they are properly activating the Christian life. So he's talking about best case scenario of us missionally engaging the culture. And we'll talk about that in a second. But he says, be subject, fall into your proper role. Remember, I talked to you about different spheres or jurisdictions and different levels of government. There is personal government. There's family government. Uh, there, there, there's community government. There's ecclesiological government. And there is civic government. Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 13 says God created those. We're going to dive into that in a second. But look what he says. He says, be subject, listen, for the Lord's sake to every human institution. This word human, of course, is the word anthropos for man in general. But the word for institution is, a, is, 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 a, is an interesting word. It doesn't mean, when he says human institution, that the institution was created by man. Inherently in the word for institution means something that God has sovereignly created that he has allowed man to have jurisdiction and responsibility in. 
And so when he talks about human institution, he's talking about here in the context, government. Now, if you hold your finger there, I want to, we got to read these verses because I believe we need to get this ingrained into our head. Romans 13. Oh, I didn't even get my first point. Sorry, y'all. Christians must view civic institutions as created by God. I'm sorry. Christians should view civic institutions as created by God. Verse 1. Let every person be subject to governing authorities. Listen to what he says. For there is no authority except from God. Wow. You know why I like this verse? Because it teaches me a whole lot about authority and governmental systems. Even in our democracy, the appointing of whoever is in office is not done by electoral votes. But God. Some of you were asking, who should I vote for? That's why we didn't tell you. We believe you should vote, and we'll talk about that. We, we, we believe that that was very important. But ultimately, every single leader, even the bad ones, are appointed by God. God has a sovereign, chosen usage for each leader. This ain't nothing new. God said, I raised Pharaoh up. I raised Pharaoh up. Now, Pharaoh ended up killing some of the children of the children of Israel. And God raised them up. How do we deal with that? God sovereignly having place, and this is, has no implication for abortion. Don't walk away saying, oh, he's saying, well, you know, God calls not, please, don't walk away with that. Because I want you to get abortion out of your head for just five minutes. Five minutes, like, let's take abortion as not the center of politics Jesus is. So let's take that off our mind for a minute, and let's think through this. And, and, he, and, and he walks through beautifully, he says, and he says, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. And so we see that Christians must view civic institutions as created by God, our political system, third world political systems. In in other words, the system itself as a system was created by God. Man's execution of that governmental system is not God executing that. It's the difference. So God does execute government, institute government. He instituted government in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. When he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. That's called set up global government. Adam was supposed to be the president or the, 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 the primary ruler by which all the world was to be filled with the glory of God. Theocratic rule. So government... 
didn't start with the Roman Empire. It didn't start with Greece. It didn't start with Persia. It didn't start with Babylon. It didn't start with Egypt. God, but even government started even before time began. Because the Father, <laughs> the Son, and the, and the Holy Spirit are eternal rulers and governors of themselves, of their attributes, and they were even legislating and planning out the activity of creation before they created it. They were in agreement with one another. They were in convos with one another. They were chopping it up with one another eternally. And so government, presidencies, all of that stuff is not in particular the work of man, but ultimately the initiating of the sovereign activity of a living God. And so we look further in the text that we're in, <clears throat> and he see, he says, whether it be to emperors as supreme, crazy, talking about the supremacy of the emperor. Of course, this points to dictatorship. Of course, he had senators and governors who helped offset his monarchialness. Except for when he fully took over the Senate and he became the Senate. It's kind of like when you were watching um, Star Wars. I don't know if y'all watch Star Wars. But you remember when um, Emperor Palpatine was Senator Palpatine. And, and he came and power rested in him for a minute, but he was supposed to deliver it back to the Senate. And he said, because of the times, I, I, I want to go ahead and just become emperor, emperor humbly. Um, and he secured rule for himself. That's kind of what went on in this. Then he goes forward. Stay with me. He says, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to the praise of those who do good. I love this. I love this. Because it talks about the fact that God <clears throat> sent. Now, the governors, of course, in this context were actually uh, dispensed and appointed by the emperor to be in different jurisdictions to be an extension of his authority. Okay? But, 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 what, but what happens is, is that they are supposed to punish, and they're not only supposed to punish, but they're also supposed to reward. They're supposed to punish, and, which, and, we're, and he's talking about just punishment here. Because why do, why do I know that? Because he goes... He says, for this is the will of God. In other words, it's the will of God that the government punish or bears the sword, some passages say. That's a whole not, another conversation when we talk about uh, capital punishment. I think if you read the Bible, you really think differently about what we should think about capital punishment. Because God, God will capitally punish people in hell eternally. <laughs> my, my, my. But then to the praise of those who do good. Stay with me. I want to walk slow through all of these. So there is a reward system. Like, it's funny. I, every time I read this passage, I was like, man, I wish, like, a police would, like, pull me over one day and say, you know what, man? Let me give you a pound. You was going speed limit. I just wish that would just happen one day. But, you know, when you hear that whoop, whoop. And you look up in your thing, you think he's going to pass you, like, please pass me, please, please pass me, please pass me, please pass me, please pass me, please pass me. Dang! 
Some of y'all know what it's like when y'all on a, y'all going like 80 in, G, in Jesus' name praying for traveling grace. <laughs> y'all know what I'm talking about. I seen some of y'all. I ain't going to say no names. But I'm um, trying to race. We're talking about pastor, let's race. But um, you know when you go over the hill, when you're on the highway, and the popo sitting right there, rack out. And then you try to get behind the other car, you know what I'm saying, and so that he can hit him first. And then you be looking at your, your you, you put on your brakes, you know, slow down. And then you looking up, you slow down slowly so you want, I hope he didn't see that I was kind of slowing down just now. And you looking up in the rear view and looking like, Lord, please don't have him, please don't. And then that dude back up and turn, you're like, oh, no. And when he passed you, you're like, But, but the government is set up to punish and reward. That's what they're set up for. On the most minute of things, all the way up to Supreme Court. All of them. <laughs> so God has set up government to keep some type of a civic order that has application in many spheres. But governors aren't the only ones, based on this text, that are supposed to have a po- political connection. And so we look here, which brings me to my next point. Christians must see civic institutions missionally. Christians must see civic institutions missionally. He says here, he says, for this is the will of God that by doing good. Stop there. That's that's beautiful. Because there's a sense in which these Christians who are suffering, who are even experiencing the frustration of a a lack of connectivity to their social sphere, their economic sphere, and and even their political sphere, or even some of them in the background of this have even lost it. And Paul calls them to do good. And it's a passage that I'm going to eventually take us to that kind of is mind-boggling in our understanding of what does it mean to do good. Jesus actually tells us how to do good. You see over in Titus chapter 3, verse 1, you see that idea of doing good. Even throughout the book of Titus, it talks about good works. 3.14, he says, let us teach our people to engage in good works in order that they may not be found unfruitful. Verse 1 talks about the servitude of godly believers in relation to the civic sphere. And he goes into verse 2 and he begins to talk about the fact that the reason why we should do it is because we should remember that we were once lost. It's interesting that he connects our connection in some way, shape, or form. And I'm going to talk at the end, I'm going to talk about three ways in which we do it without becoming common, but remaining consecrated in a common culture, yet engaging it politically. So Christians must diffuse any sociological misconceptions that unbelievers have towards Christianity. So when we talk about doing good, it's interesting how political, some politics, it it talks about in the New Testament, it's interesting, and Acts chapter 9, verse 15. When Paul received his calling to ministry, and it was explained to Annas before he healed Paul, because he was scared to death that Paul was coming over his crib. 
And Jesus said to Annas, he must take my gospel before kings. Powerful. That Paul was even supposed to missionally engage kings. Political structure, monarchs. Daniel, Daniel, from Daniel 1 to Daniel 6. You parallel the book of Peter with the exilic nature of the children of Israel in the Old Testament. And you see that they utilized and leveraged where they were in that particular time as God providentially brought them in contact with political leaders. They didn't just they didn't ask them why y'all eat pork. I mean, y'all eating shrimp. You know what I'm saying? They'd probably look at them like, what are you talking about? In other words, they didn't bring Israeli or theocratic ethics necessarily to the political sphere. They wanted to infiltrate it and missionally engage it. And so it's very important. You see Nehemiah as the cupbearer leveraging his place at the side of Artaxerxes for the missional engagement and the re restructuring of the, of, of the walls of Jerusalem and the temple. So utilizing it as God would providentially make room for his people who are a mini kingdom in the midst of a massive kingdom and are supposed to in some way, shape, or form. I like the way my man uh, 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 Clowney says it. He talks about the fact that the church is God's kingdom embassy on planet Earth. We are his embassy. What does an embassy do? What, 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 what does an ambassador do? In other words, there's sovereign territory of one country within another country. And whatever that larger country is, that little, that little embassy is a microcosm within foreign territory of the macro, the larger kingdom that it's a part of. And so when we talk about doing good as believers, theologically and even practically, we need to begin talking about how do we develop practical commercials of redemption that has a prophetic voice. I'm not talking about social gospel, so don't get scared. But I am talking about that, that there's an important piece of it in which we as believers must begin to reflect the glory of Jesus systemically that the word may get out about this micro kingdom. Good works. Good works. I think in our society, we're only known for abortion. When politics come up, they all, if you want the Christians, the only thing they care about is abortion and homosexuality. That's it. If you just land on that, you're cool. And I believe that the Bible talks about a larger concern that applies to those things, too. That doesn't mean we act like those don't exist. But as we look at the scriptures, it seems like the theocratic and uh, of the biblical concern of believers was broader than just a few issues that we do need to emphasize and we do need to proclaim, but they have become the banner of Christianity in a fearful and inconsiderate way that I think we need to work through as Christians. Jeremiah 29, 7 talks about seeking the peace of the polis, of the, I mean, of the city, seeking the shalom, and we, we, we've talked a lot about what that looks like. In other words, Peter is talking to God's people about the fact that Christians witness should be so missional yet attractional in relation, not just being cool, but in relation to their care 
and their concern for a city and a context and the word begins to get out and people begin to have a new frame of what Christianity looks like. How do I know that? Because what does he say the purpose of those good works are? He says that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Interesting in this text, <clears throat> Peter assumes <clears throat> and he knows that unbelievers have seen the godliness of believers <clears throat> and have misinterpreted that godliness for something else. Uh, in other words, in other words, it's countercultural. We're not just culturally relevant. We're also countercultural. In other words, where the culture where the culture uh, does not uh, uh, submit to the compliances of Scripture, then the, God, the God's people back up. Like in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, when they said, stop preaching the gospel. They were like, well, I'm just going to tell you, we're going to submit to you, but we are just saying, like, should we listen to God or should we listen to men? It, it was interesting, Paul... <clears throat> He talked crazy to one of the um, kings, King Agrippa, <laughs> and, 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 and he got slapped. Right there, he was sitting there, whap, right in Acts 20, I can't remember, Acts 25, 26. Got slapped. Then when he said, he said, why you talking to him like that? And Paul's, oh, my bad. Like, I didn't know who he was, like, at, at the time when I said that. Like, there is a time where you, you know, come a certain way, but then when he found out he was an authority... It's, it's interesting how Paul talked to them when he began to talk. He says, uh, I, I, I like even the Old Testament. They'll say, they'll say, oh, long live the king. Oh, live king. Then start lighting them up with kingdom nutrition. So, you know what I'm saying? Like, it wasn't like Christians was punking out, oh, God bless you, you know, king. Uh, you know, it wasn't none of that. They were like, long live the king. But I'm going to tell you, um, ba da 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 so there is a sense in which Christians are supposed to be the conscious of the society in which it is incarnated into. You're to be the conscious of North Philly. How does our presence in Philadelphia impact the conscious of Philadelphia? How does our presence here, how, in, in whatever sphere you in, we got mass social workers here. How does your presence in that civic sphere of social work proclaim the gospel how are people learning about Jesus through the way you walk with Jesus and even the way you live this invisible ethic visibly while they live according to a whole different ethic so when he says silence the ignorance he does say that there are places where the practices and godly ethics of believers become common ground for unbelievers to understand, for, for unbelievers to understand that there's something different about us. And even if they don't come to Jesus, they acknowledge and even respect that difference. And I'm challenged that in American society, people don't respect Christianity for the right reasons. They don't like us. Because we've improperly proclaimed the gospel. We don't proclaim the gospel, we proclaim morality. And because we are trying to sanctify the flesh of unbelievers without the gospel, that's called carnal weapons. 
Because the Bible says the weapons of our warfare are not. Yeah, yeah. And so when Jesus came, like Tip was pointing, his coming was very political. He didn't come to change the flesh. He came that people may be saved. It's beautiful how this is laid out in this context in the midst of people who are going through mass frustration and some level of suffering. So he says, I want Christianity to begin to shut people's mouths. Does your walk with Jesus Christ shut people's mouths? Or is your life in a negative way a fuel for their, their continued misconceptions of what God and his kingdom is like? Think about that. How does your life, how does our life, not just by us creating programs, I think inner city churches have done a good job at creating a lot of socioeconomic political programs, but have still not made a disciple. You can have, you can have, uh, we, we believe in all of that. We believe you should have food pantries, you know what I'm saying? We, 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 we believe that you should have uh, 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 counseling centers for, for, for women who are pregnant, we, 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 we believe that you should give legal assistance, if, all, if at all possible. We believe that you should, you should help people financially a little bit on certain things at certain times at certain points so that they can become comprehensive. But the seed within every sociological gift must be the overt proclaimed Jesus Christ. So that people may know, yeah, we care. Yes, we do. We do care. But we also care bigger than what we're giving to you right now. And so, and, so, and so Peter is passionate about there being no lapse in any sphere of a Christian witness. No lapse. No, no, no missing elements and no frustrations among the believers. Because ignorance, of course, lacking the knowledge of God and spiritual discernment. So he wants to help them with that. Includes a false understanding of Christianity spread among outsiders. So our desire is to be countercultural, the counter, to present the countercultural aspects of Christian doctrine and ethics that contradict our cultural values here in America. And so America and in our history, Christianity has been perceived by our high D voices. When I say high D, some of the disc inventory. People have developed their misconceptions about Christianity from our misconceptions about Christianity. Many Christians are just as ignorant as the people we're trying to engage. And so what's important is for us not to remain in ignorance. And so how do we silence them? Hold your finger here and turn over to Luke chapter 6. Powerful passage. Very misquoted passage, though. Loving your enemies. An enemy is anyone that doesn't know Jesus Christ. That's an enemy. If somebody knows, let me just give you a lesson real quick. If somebody knows Jesus Christ, I don't care how mad you are at them, they are not your enemy. Let me say that again. Because I know some of y'all mad at some people that are Christians. They're not your enemy. 
But those who are enemies are those who are enemies of the cross. But check out, check, check, check this out. Start at verse 27. I want us to meditate on these things. He says, he says, but I say to you who here love your enemies, Luke 6, starting at 27, do good to those who hate you. Wow. These are those verses we like to forget about when, you know, oh, uh, what? I don't, uh, huh? Do good to those who, huh? Oh, yeah, I am going to do good. I used to do my mama like that. She'd be calling me, and I know she know what I'm doing. I don't know what it is about mamas. They know what you're doing, and they ain't even on the same floor. Eric, huh? What are you saying? I know. Yeah, ma, I heard you. But do good to those who hate you. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Bless those who curse you. When is, when is the last time have Christians done this? When is the last time we've done that? Pray for those who abuse you. When, did, have you prayed for McCain and Obama and Bush? I don't care if you agree with any of them as leaders. Have you prayed for them? Christians all fussing about Obama and him being black. Should we just don't vote for him just because he's black? And then some talking about, well, he believes in abortion and homosexuality. So all I hear are, but I, I, I didn't see one blog that prayed. Why don't you use your three-way three, three line on your phone? I'm going to call you. You call him, I call them. Let's have some prayer. But we arguing, almost, I mean, I've never seen Christians almost cuss and almost crack each other in the head with crowbars ever in my life. He said, to those who strike you on the cheek, offer the other, oh, I'm going to be honest, I struggle with that one. <laughs> oh man, you hit me if you want to. But no, I'm wrong for that. I'm wrong for that. <sighs> Sanctification. Sanctification. But that does have a context in and of its own. This has to do with abuse because of the gospel. Not just because somebody just mad at you in general. So remember that. That's the context of it. All right? And... Y'all so dumb. And from, and from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic from him. This is that, I mean, Jesus is using hyperbole. That's basically take off your underwear, basically. What's under it? Just give him everything, basically. It's talking about the spirit of it. Give to everyone who begs from you. <clears throat> but you got to understand what begging, those who beg, begged were in this context. Those who really had needs, not for those who big old strapping dudes on the street that can work. You don't get it now. You got 25 cents. You bigger than me. <laughs> Swole in the mug. You need to be out there on that car. Uh, the, you know, we ain't talking about them. But you got to know people's story, too. So doing good. We just going to talk about it. This ain't nothing heavy about it, hopefully. Give to everyone who begs from you and from one who takes away your goods. Do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Wow. Now, now check out the rest of this. This is beautiful. He says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is it to you? 
So Jesus is talking about what Christian ethics look like generally, but what we can talk about the idea of doing good because Peter talks about doing good and applies it to ungodly government. So we are to love the government. Wow. I know this, this is just real simple. I'm just reading what the Bible says. Do you love the government? The guys, not the structure, the dudes and the dudettes in government. I can't, I don't see no woman as president. Like, see, that ain't even the issue. Like, one dude on CNN, Christian dude, like, like that ain't even the issue. Like, ugh, whole nother conversation. For even sinners love those who love them. Scratching my back, I scratch yours. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those uh, from whom you expect to receive, what credit is it to you? This is talking about eternity. Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high in other words you will reflect who you are practically based on how you do good works to those who aren't a part of god's ecclesiological kingdom for he is kind to the ungrateful and evil I'm just going to read this. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. Now, read the next section. Judge not and you will not be judged. That doesn't mean don't judge. Like people take this, see, and only God can judge me. That's not what the text is talking about. It's talking about judging rightly. If you're guilty of the same thing somebody is guilty of, you can't judge them because you're judging yourself in return. That's what it means. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Because 1 Corinthians, Corinthians chapter 6 talk about we will judge. And you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Now check this out. This verse is always used during offerings. Give and I'll give it back to you. Give and I'll give it back to you. Give and I'll give it back to you. Press down. Shaking together. Running over. Back in good measure. I'll give it back to you again come on choir singing give and i'll give go bring your offerings and i'll give it back to you choir going give they ain't got nothing to do with the offering period <laughs> guess what the context of this is as you give to your enemies what they don't deserve God will return relationship missionally with your enemies as common ground to proclaim the gospel. Look at the text. It's talking about the principle of sowing and reaping beyond loot. And it's not even talking about ecclesiological giving. It's talking about sociological interaction with unbelievers. So ain't talking about giving in the offering plate. We want you to give in the offering plate, amen. But that ain't what this text is talking about. So when we talk about doing good, God utilizes the good that we do to the, this is it, to, to do good to our neighbor, to develop common ground so that there are as few obstacles as possible in relation to our reputation to be able to tell them about Jesus Christ. 
And so God, in other words, as believers, we got to begin working through and challenging ourselves to proclaiming the goodness of the gospel versus the gospel of morality. A few more and then I'm out of your way. Christians must see their natural citizenship in light of their eternal citizenship. <clears throat> Back to 1 Peter, it says in verse 16, <clears throat> Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a, uh, as a cover-up for evil, but live as servants of God. This is dope. Interesting. I almost was like struggling with this. I was like, where did, where did this come from? But, 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 but what is beautiful about it is it's saying sometimes in society, people who call themselves Christians tend to lose themselves in the civic process. So basically, what is freedom? What is our definition of freedom based on Galatians? Y'all remember? Enjoy God, enjoy his pe people, and enjoy his creation, what? On his terms. In other words, don't let the liberty of our ability to politically engage and civically engage turn into us being servants of the emperor or the king or the government that we're under, forgetting that we're servants of God. That's when you go here and it's because the word here is doulos for or bond servant, so that we were bought with a higher price. So we must not let our natural, our natural citizenship trump our eternal citizenship, even though we are supposed to be responsible Christian citizens. Okay? The next, finally, then I'm, I'm going to get out your way. Christ must place, I mean, Christians must place their social, ecclesial, and spiritual, spiritual and political relationships in their proper place. Christians must place their social, ecclesial, spiritual, and political relationships in their proper place. Just a few key imperatives that he says. He says, verse 17, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. That's what he leaves them with. <laughs> honor everyone. In other words, give honor, and you'll see over Romans 13, give honor to whom honor is due. Love the brotherhood. So love and engage and have caring relationships with other believers also. See that equally. Fear God. Stand in the and stand in awe of the reality of God. Honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. So there are three ways to be missionally, missional politically. It says in 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7, it calls us to pray for our political leaders. We, touch, we touched on that. We need to pray for them more often. Pray for their salvation. Um, stop putting on blast their Christianity. Also having a prophetic voice in civic praxis. That, that, that will be in, in, in um, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17. It says, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring to justice the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. It's, it's, it's a multitude of them. So pray. Prophetic doesn't mean prophesying over leaders. I see this leader in the spirit being. That ain't what it's talking about. When we say prophetically, we're talking about proclaim God's vision 
for people's lives and his picture of his kingdom, of what it looks like when it comes to the context that we're in. So that's what Jesus came to do. Repent for the what? Kingdom of heaven is at hand. But what I, what I like most, especially in this Christmas season, is that we don't look in hope to any political leader. Turn over to Isaiah 9. And let's point this to Jesus. It's one of my favorite missiological passages. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. Check that out. The child was born, but the son was given. Preexistence, creation. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. However, <laughs> the one whose shoulders they are on, his name shall be called Wonderful. I wish somebody knew the one I'm talking about right now. If I was at my old Baptist church, I would close it out. Saying his name shall be called Wonderful. Uh-huh, uh, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. I said he's Father. <laughs> Woo! Prince of peace. But read after it. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. There is only one vote for this cat to rule. And that's the father's. The father voted Jesus in as prince and king. And Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15 will give his crown up because he understands that God's eternal intention always was for him to rule everything practically and unveiled. So when we talk about political action, it's pointing to the eternal state of the reign of the Godhead and the increase of their government shall never end. The father won't be in like for four years and the son won't be in like and the holy, nah. It's an unending rule. And it says, it's beautiful here. It says, and of peace there will be no end. Shalom comprehensive wholeness there will be no end to the eternal shalom that we will experience in him so we don't get so civically and socially involved that we forget about the eternality of a governmental rule he says on the throne of david and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In other words, God's passion for himself. God's passion for himself will make the eternal rule happen.
but we are his constituency. Yeah, that's the word. And we are the visible, invisible ambassadors, men and women of his rule. And the question is on the floor, will we merely do good programs here? See people get fed and build hospitals and all the good things. Help people to get parts to their body that they don't have, like legs and all types of things. And we'll provide wheelchairs and provide medicine, banging stuff. But will people see a kingdom? I don't want to be the quintessential inner city church where we turn into a social organization that people come here only for what we have to hand out. But I would love to see the whole of the gospel and that gospel to penetrate, to penetrate the contours of their soul. He says, Christians must favor a limited role for government to support life and to restrain evil, but not enforce the righteous living that is the standard of morality for Christ's church. Salvation does not now come by the redemption of the political order. Wow. Wow. When every president comes in, he cleans the cabinet of the president before him. When Jesus comes back, he's not going to hire anybody in existence to reign with him that's been reigning unless they're in him. <laughs> Y'all missed that. He says, but by the new birth that brings lost sinners into the kingdom of God. I pray that we're not scatterbrained about this, but we would learn to do good and would see our role in a magnificent way to be able to engage our society and for the city to view the church in a, in, in a better way than just when the, somebody's getting elected, they come and we give them a stage during pastoral reflection, which that won't happen here. I'll tell you that right now. Um, we don't endorse candidates. There's only one we endorse. But we will vote because we want to do good. We will help people because we want to do good. But most of all, our goal is to silence the ignorance of those who front on Jesus Christ. And so I pray that our lives, and not just Epiphany Fellowship, but the church in this city and across the world, will begin to silence people being misinformed about what Christianity is really about. That's the goal. That's the goal. And to point to a rule that will not have any flaws in it, a theocratic rule. Let us pray, and during this Christmas season, let's announce the theocratic rule of Jesus Christ as one who is about to be brought into office. Let's talk about the one who is in office and will remain in office forever. Father, don't get to talk about this much. <clears throat> But it's important that we understand what our role is, especially these believers understanding their role in the government. There's so much we could talk about, and when we get in the nature and purpose of the local church, we're going to talk more about this, Lord. 
But I pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that we as believers must do good practically and it to spread, the word to spread, that Christians don't just run their mouths. They really authentically care. And we know that people still may not trust Jesus. Like our good works don't make people trust Jesus Christ, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. However, you have called us to proclaim overtly and covertly. You've called us to that. You even did that, Jesus. And so may everything that we do and everything that we say reflect the reign of Jesus. Especially during this Christmas season, Lord God, where um, most people are more worried about whether or not they'll be able to provide gifts than they are about other aspects of eternity. And so, God, help us to stress as if we, just, just like people stress about them not being able to give a gift to someone that they want to give, help us to feel that same frustration when it comes to the gospel being proclaimed all the time, but even effectually during this season where people can connect some dots to some things. It's beautiful how Charles Schultz in the Charlie Brown Christmas special, Lord, had Linus proclaim the gospel. Every time I see it, I hold back tears and just hear him quoting Luke chapter 2. St. Charlie Brown, that's the real meaning of Christmas. Wow. And how the tree was him artistically pointing to the weakness of what people would have normally ignored would be the very tree used uh, to be a part of their program. And so, God, I pray that we would see the tree properly. Not the Christmas tree, but the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.